Hi, good morning. Welcome to the Science Podcast with uh, me, Mr. Short, Mr. Atkinson, and Mr. Kartner. Hello. So today we are talking about. Well, we've got a couple of things. Um, so we, we're starting off. It's a nice, it's a nice day. Um, I cycled in this morning. Nobody else did. Just to make that point. And uh, wearing shorts. Sun's out. And that reduces my carbon footprint. So. On the news this morning, it was there was a, an article on instead of reducing carbon emissions, which we should all be doing. There was the next IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climatic Change, were talking about removing carbon dioxide from the air using uh, machines. So there's a, a good place to start. Anybody want to come in? Uh, I will. Uh, I just wanted to say that I drove an electric car. I drive an electric car, so my carbon footprint is even lower. Say, <laughs> it can't be even lower. <laughs> well, I don't see my effort. My effort levels are fairly low when I commute. I don't breathe hard, so I'm not contributing as much CO2. <laughs> so my carbon footprint is alright. I, I think you're breathing quite hard. Your, your chest game was winding you up. What chest game? <laughs> <laughs> um, and another good point, you were talking about in your class, you were talking about where the charge, where the energy comes from to charge your car. Yeah, it was actually a, a first year class I had a, last year. And a pupil pointed out, because they, they, were, they were very well aware of Teslas, and they said, well, sort of, uh, if the energy that provides that electrical energy isn't clean, yeah. have you just wasted money? Wasted money on the environmental side of things because you're just getting used to the, um, just the energy's been generated from something that's releasing carbon dioxide rather than solar cells or wind. And if the electrical energy that provides the energy for all these electric cars, if that's all generated in fossil fuels, <laughs> it's kind of defeating the purpose, isn't it? Yeah, it does in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, but it does mean that our city centres aren't as polluted. True. They still could be as congested. I was reading into this actually. You know, there's a congestion charge in London. It's about eleven or twelve quid. Yeah. So if you want, you don't even need to be going into London. You might even just drive through it or drive through a bit of it. But as soon as you pass this imaginary yeah. line yeah. that's set, however, you're instantly charged about eleven or twelve quid. It doesn't matter if you're in there for a minute or for two hours. Yeah. It's just you cross that boundary, you're fine. Are you saying we should have that in Falkirk? Well, do you know, there was a thing that they said on the news yesterday that because of the uptake in people buying fully electric cars, yeah. the government are now concerned that they're losing 1.2% of their total tax income because people are, less people are paying road tax because there's no road no, tax no, on yeah. them, and there's less people buying fuel because more people are just charging. Well, maybe. So they're thinking about having toll roads now. Uh, maybe your point... Um, about if you're charging from non-renewable sources, then you pay your road tax. So if, if you can't prove that you're getting it from a, an ethical, not an ethical sort of environmental oh, source, yeah. then you don't pay road tax. But if it's from you know power plants and nuclear, then maybe you pay road tax. I will take, and everyone should take this next comment with a pinch of salt because this was <laughs> an analysis with everything we say. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> This is on an episode of Top Gear, and it was a recent one, I think it was the Grand Tour, the newer one, and it was James May and his little BMW i3, which is electric, versus Jeremy Clarkson and his Volkswagen Golf GTI, souped up, <laughs> super petrol <laughs> thing, right? And uh, but Clarkson made the point that at the moment, the UK only produces 
5% more energy than it uses. So if everybody is then switching to electric cars, then that's like a net decrease uh-huh. to the UK's energy production slash consumption. Yeah. And you think, well, I mean, that all the energy has to come from somewhere. It does. You know, I guess it's one of the things we we work on as we develop and go through. I mean, it's part of the joy, you know. Uh, people understand that we move uh, forward all the time. Uh, you know, I I would like to think that I don't have a carbon footprint because I drive everywhere. But uh, I understand exactly that the energy has to come from somewhere. So fossil fuels are what we use to drive our cars, but fossil fuels are finite. We know this. This isn't. That's not a secret. They're not going to last. They're not going to come back. Once they're gone, they're gone. And at the moment, we're trying to find new ways to generate new energy without a running out of the current source. So we're hoping that we can fill that gap during the time. But the more people that make the transition, the more the incentives for a, a, well, groups and governments and lobbyists to then look at those renewable sources. Because if you think like 30 odd years ago, electric cars wouldn't have been a thing at all. It was a... I seem to remember the milk float coming around the village and that was electric, so yeah. it wasn't noisy in the morning. But, mm, yeah, okay. very quiet. So that must that have huge sense. batteries and carrying, obviously carrying quite a lot of, of yeah. mass in terms of the milk glass bottles, of course. So the range probably wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> We're not quite talking Sean Connery's time, but... <laughs> well, the joy of a lot of these things, though, is that it's small, simple steps that then have like big knock-on yeah. effects. Yeah. Like getting rid of single-use plastics, that's huge. Yeah. You can uh, wipe those out. Like the, when straws disappeared from bars yeah. and pubs, that caused so many people to be a bit, oh, why? If you take these things away, it's like, because they're really bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, removing carbon dioxide from the air by machines, where, where does, where, naturally, where does that carbon dioxide get removed from the air? Because we, obviously we produce carbon dioxide and there's a carbon dioxide, a carbon cycle, but where does the carbon dioxide get removed? What do you mean, where well, are they going to move well, from? Or yeah, naturally, because we're, we're talking about machines to remove it, but obviously naturally there's a carbon dioxide sink that takes away carbon dioxide from the air. Uh, well, I mean, we've got peat bogs which are very good at trapping carbon, but we're drying a lot of them up because we need the land. How do peat bogs trap carbon? Uh, it's part of the solubility, I believe, uh, of they're carbon. Acidic, carbon. Yeah. So dissolving so, carbon dioxide because they're wet, I guess. Yeah, uh, so solubility is well, like oceans are very good at trapping carbon dioxide. Oceans will well. dissolve carbon dioxide yeah. and they're increasing acidity as part of global warming, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and the, part, the, entry, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide that's coming into the air, which is then going into the ocean, because the water is a good source of... Well, it's good to dissolve carbon dioxide. Yeah. So we can remove it from the atmosphere. Now, the only logical thing I'm seeing is trying to extract it from the ocean, because if we extract it from the air, that's not going to affect anything that's within the yeah. uh, that, that's ocean the We talk about ocean pH increasing, carbon dioxide dissolving, but as our world warms up, carbon dioxide becomes less soluble. That's one of the weird things. As you increase temperature, solids become more soluble, but gases become less soluble because of entropy, which we can come on to later. Um, but I was thinking more of trees. Trees take out most of our carbon dioxide. Yeah. So, so that's essentially where all the mass yes. of a tree comes from, isn't it? Yeah, so why, why don't we... You're wondering if... <coughs> I talk about machines to take carbon dioxide out of the air. Stopping deforestation is perhaps maybe a shortcut to that. 
at Olympic Park. And oh, planting more trees. Planting more trees, yes. Uh, Long-term trees, not necessarily carbon. Trees, when they remove carbon from the environment through natural processes, because they take carbon dioxide into one of the photosynthesis to make sugars, only works up to a point when the plant then reaches like sort of a net zero, once it reaches a certain level of growth then it can also start producing carbon dioxide because it's a bigger plant. It's producing uh, like carbon dioxide through respiration processes yeah, so within the plant. It's always going to be producing through respiration. Yes, because so plants respire as well. Zero. Is that your compensation point? Is that yeah, um, so everyone always thinks about photosynthesis and they remember that first part of the equation. The carbon dioxide comes in and the water comes in and the oxygen comes out. But they forget that plants respire as well. They produce CO2 because they use oxygen and glucose to make Carbon dioxide. So when it's growing, it's taking in carbon dioxide and storing it as wood, and then when it reaches a certain point, it's not growing as much. Like we we don't grow as much when we reach adulthood. Yeah. Then it's a net exporter of carbon dioxide. Perhaps. Correct. Uh, which is one of the great things. See, when you leave untended woods, uh, and we don't manage woods, uh, we constantly try to alter nature to help ourselves. But we can ruin the local soils by just letting woods overgrow and not letting new life come through. You can reduce uh, the roots and uh, sorry, uh, sorry, soil integrity for a lack of roots and good root structure, which holds soils together. Trees are fantastic for uh, holding soil together. Yeah. But um, wood filled with old trees on the side of a hill, say, is more likely to be prone to a landslide than yeah. younger trees because the younger trees are more vi uh, viral and they grow better. So they're better holding on to. It the would soil. also block light. For new growth, from, from new more growth, mature right? trees yeah. uh, block the sunlight and they, they reduce they, they reduce the overall diversity of the forest. But also, too. I suppose when the car, when the tree is grown, it's going to die eventually. Then it's going to decompose and release lots of carbon dioxide. Yeah, and if it dies naturally as well, it won't decompose quickly. Yeah. Uh, it'll be a, over a period of time. That's not to say things won't break and fall, and there aren't factors there. Yeah. But we've got to remember these things are on a larger scale, maybe yeah. more so than the what we are producing and what we are using them for too. So what about, that's the carbon cycle in trees, what about the carbon cycle for crustaceans, uh, things with shells? Because they, they, they're calcium carbonate uh, shell, so they must take carbon dioxide from somewhere, oh. so more dissolved carbon dioxide, surely the, the seashell life is, is booming at the moment. There's a problem with uh, like crayfish, I know that. Right. Like, cause Restaurants, you'll see crayfish in increasingly increasing numbers of restaurants yeah. because it's a big problem. You know, the 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 kind of prime predators in the environment, and there's just lots of them. We should be trying to eat more just to reduce the population. All right. I do I do know that. Okay. But on the other hand, if you've got increasing acidity, yeah. then you've got increasing reaction with calcium carbonate, which yeah. reduces like coral reefs and things, which are also calcium carbonate. Yeah. That's something I don't know much about actually. How the carbon dioxide is hidden, sequestered in uh, seashells. Now, a lot of it can be broken up on ocean floors, or I imagine, especially with like currents, because currents that exist within oceans, they are continuously moving. The ocean is continuously moving; it's alive and it's being pushed mm. all the time. If you're putting something static in the water, you'll find that it moves, which you know we can observe that and know that. Uh, but because there are so many different factors, and remember there's a lot of bacteria in the oceans as well, like decomposing bacteria that are present, uh, things that are, live in the water, the organisms. Water is essential for life. There is more life in the ocean than there is on the land. There just is. Mm. Uh, so a lot of that life is in there doing these little reactions which we don't get to see because they're microscopic. Whereas if they were floating more readily in the air, they'd be happening more on land. But because there are more of them in the water, 
That's why we're not seeing these react. We know they're happening, but we can't visibly see them. We just observe the effects. Unless we take out the pond water and look at the microscopic organisms. Then we go, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're back to, we don't know much about the seashells, I suppose, and how they, those animals do that. But So we're back to the machines. Machines to take carbon dioxide out of the air, which is quite interesting. I wonder how that's going to happen, because again, that's got to be net, well, less than net zero, hasn't well, it's it? It's got to be worth it in the long run, because how much CO2 will be used in the production of said machine? Yeah. Yeah, you've got to use some energy, but it's got to be renewably energy generated. Yeah. Uh, it's got to lock the carbon dioxide away so it doesn't isn't released again. Yeah. Uh, like chalk, I guess the chalk cliffs have locked it away from uh, dead seashells as well. Um, and work continuously just to... Yeah. And just not really wonder where the financial incentive is for that. It'll have to be group funded by the planet, really. Yeah. These companies that are making billions of profit. Uh, which would be interesting to see. Everybody collectively funding something that's going to take carbon dioxide out of the air. For the benefit of the entire yeah. species. Otherwise, we, you know, we're all heading to um, increased climate change and weather variability. Which, really, we've got time to talk about moving on to randomness. Yeah. If, if we can. If we can get anything in there on randomness. A little bit. But the, I mean, the argument... The link, I suppose, from what we've just talked about is the randomness and like uncertainty. I mean, we mentioned earlier on about the, the laws of entropy and thermodynamics. These systems only get more messed up with time. Disorder increases. So there's, to an extent, like all the energy that we're putting in to try and become more energy efficient, that gap just becomes wider and wider and wider. And you're, you're always losing energy. Yeah. And so therefore you're always kind of... So maybe we should start with that, with entropy. So entropy is the, the fundamental law that disorder must increase in the universe. Yeah. For any system, uh, for any closed system, the entropy of said system can only ever increase. There's four laws of thermodynamics. There's the first, second and third, and then it was... A bonus law. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's called the zeroth law because it was fourth in terms of its being written down and transcribed on... But it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to have that first. And the 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 law on entropy is the second law of thermodynamics, which is all to do with disorder. Which comes to the solubility part, in that gases become more disordered when you warm up a solution that has a dissolved gas in it. The driving force of that is entropic. Uh, you're increasing disorder. And you see quite a lot of that in chemical reactions in that they're not uh, energy-driven, but they're entropy-driven. Mm. So they're increasing disorder. And you need to constantly put energy in to get out whatever you... And the more you put in, the more you lose. So we're wondering, with the discussion that precipitated using this uh, as a point in the podcast was that can anything be com- completely random? So... Best way to describe, I think we talked about it before, the best way to describe randomness, and anyone listen, who listens to this can try this in the future as well, even if you're in a group, get people to distribute themselves randomly in the room that you're in. And just say that, spread yourselves out randomly, and pound to a penny. When people do that, they will spread themselves out in a way that they are actually relatively now, equidistant <coughs> from folk. When you do that, are they allowed to speak? Uh... Are they allowed to chat shouldn't, to each other? Shouldn't make any difference. Well, yeah, it could, because then you've got an organisational state where somebody could say, let's all bunch up in the corner. 
Or you could have, for example, if you, two if you or three of them saying, we want to come together in the corner. And if you do that, they are organised it, it's not random, is it? <laughs> so maybe randomness can only be achieved when well, there's no communication. That's what I mean, yeah. yeah. You should maybe have no communication in that, so that is like individual decisions yeah. which become collective. But in true random, like for example, rainfall, if you look at rainfall as it hits the floor, randomness will not mean that every raindrop is perfectly spread. You will get clumps. You will get groups of, say, people in a room and they'll huddle together and they'll be in a wee group of their own. That is more random than everything being spread so out either. In terms of random, individual events can be totally random, but it's only when they're looked at collectively they become more random. This is getting philis- more philosophical. <laughs> say that again. So individual events can be random. So one event can be random, but when you've got a load of different events, it's a bigger picture. You become more organised. So you see a pattern. A good example, and I suppose a topical example of this with um, the Chernobyl site, Uh radiation and decay. Yeah. Uh, I believe that's part of chemistry as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we have nuclear decay. So half-life, we don't know when an individual atom will decay and spurt out radiation to become more stable. But we do know that with time, yeah. the time that it takes to do that will be very, very precise. Yes. And so the half-life, which is the time for the activity of a source to decrease by 50%, that remains constant throughout. So if you time. had, I think that links, it might link, uh, we've kind of made a jump from entropy, which is disorder, to randomness, yeah. which I hope are, hope are linked. <laughs> so uh, Schrodinger's cat, is that not linked to decay? So you've got a file of poison inside a box with a, yeah. a cat. Yeah. Or you have the file of poison which uh, might decay and release something toxic, like nuclear decay. This is it. So the and idea the cat's is, in the box. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a thought experiment. No, no cats were harmed in the <laughs> yeah. making of this experiment. Now, the cat is uh, simultaneously dead and alive at yeah. the same time. It exists in two states. Because you don't know which it is. The only way to find out is to look inside the box yeah. and determine whether or not the cat is alive or dead. Uh, now, uh, that's partly on predictability as well. Which I always thought is a, a strange experiment because the, the cat is alive or dead. But how do you know unless you look? Yeah, so that creates the uncertainty. Yeah. You cannot determine the outcome until you look at the result. Unless you, you hear it. No, <laughs> sound. <laughs> you, could, you, could, you could create a soundproof box that's blacked out. Yeah, you I'd say you could, you could make the box a vacuum inside, but then you could say that the cat will be dead. Yeah. <laughs> a radioactive source on a timer and you have no idea when it's going to pop. Yeah. The cat ex- exists in two states. So if we change the, the, the uh, and we'll use radioactivity, the file of poison with one, one uh, bit of radiation to come to kill the cat, yeah. and we have a big lump of radioactive material, yeah. then we're certain the cat is dead because yeah. we know that it's decaying regularly. But not necessarily, because you don't know at which point that the radioactive decay would have killed the cat. Or just Unless you one, take one, if you determine, if you know the radioactive source yeah. that you're putting into it, right. and you know how much radiation it's producing, right. you've removed the randomness, you've removed that uncertainty. Yeah. You've turned an uncertainty into a certainty because it can be calculated based by absorption rates and radiation doses. So you go from one atom or whatever it is to decaying, which we don't know when it's going to happen, to a big ball where we know we can calculate it. So we've gone from a small state to a large group of, a uh, phenomenally large group of atoms, and we've got some certainty there. So we, like, so for example, this is part of the Nat5 physics course where yeah. we do dissimetry and we look at uh, absorbed dose, which is the energy per unit mass that you take in, 
but then you look at equivalent dose and we define it as the risk of biological harm. Yes. Because in theory, you could be exposed to ionizing radiation and you might just get lucky. It might not ionize any of your cells. You might That's be all right. right. We're back to kind of uh, when we were talking about uh, smoking. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. People so, that live into their 90s yeah. and die of something completely unrelated. Yeah. If you look at one person who smokes, they could, yeah, you're right, live into their 90s. And you think, well, there's no effect. Yeah. But as soon as you get a whole population. Yeah. You can't use that one person yeah. and say smoking is absolutely fine. Right. It's only when it's part of a larger yeah. group. Well, we've got larger groups and sample larger sizes residue, and, stuff. and we increase the sample sizes and we correlate all these things. Like national deaths is something that they, we're always interested in because we want to know what's killing people and when it's happening. So we record the data. When you're, a person dies, we record it. Natural causes are abnormal and we go through all this data. And this allows us to make big analysis, especially within the science communities as well, because this data is readily available, especially if governments are quite willing to yeah. publish this data. It allows us to create uh, facts such as uh, more people are trampled to death by cows than there are killed by sharks. <laughs> and That's not funny for people. It isn't it trampled to death by cows because cows are very scary, especially yeah, if you've got a dog. People, don't, uh, people underestimate how dangerous cows are. Yeah. And because we have rambling within the UK in particular, uh, within the UK, yeah. we, we know like you can walk into a field, but cows themselves are still animals at the end of the day, and they are very big and heavy. It does seem more accidental with cows and sharks, so you do think of sharks as dangerous animals as opposed to cows. Uh, when you think about them in terms of the danger, but statistically, sharks don't really attack people at all. Yeah. Like, it is, any time that sharks have attacked a person, remember, you are jumping into their home and you are swimming in their environment. Same with cows. Well, you're sharing an environment with yeah. them, you're more likely to run into a cow than you are into a shark. Yeah. But at the same time, sharks, they don't understand what we are. They yeah. mistake us for food. The mo majority yeah. of the time, they mistake us for seals. We yeah. know this because we have surfboards, which from the top and the flapping, yeah. it looks like seals yeah. to a shark. Then they bite us and we don't taste nice. Yeah. But if you panic, the shark is going to fight you yeah. because it panics too. That's it. Which is just you, animal instinct. If you're attacked, your first response is to do, you know, fight or flight, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you can't really fly. You can't move away faster than a shark, so that's... That's the reaction, isn't it? And then that creates the... Right. Yeah. Hmm. So... Rather poignant point, that <laughs> one, isn't it? I'm still waiting for Mr. McNeish to come in as a, an act of randomness this morning. I don't know. <laughs> I'll just spontaneously form at the door. <laughs> Acts of randomness are never truly random. Uh, when we talk about uh, well, random number generators that are within computers, especially, those are never random no. because they are predictable as long as you understand how the algorithm works. Exactly. Well, true randomness cannot exist. We talked about this the other day. Yeah, uh, trouble this, this, random this number generator. Eh? The machines that they use to shuffle cards in Vegas. Yeah. There's a computer program behind how that's done. Yeah. So how is that not random then? Well, that's that's the the argument. Because the computer program is random. It's generated a sequence there. It's not like it's. But if you know the program and you know the random sequence, quote-unquote, that it's going to spur out... But, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, so it's not totally I'll, I'll random. You, I'll tell you an example of what we use in biology. In biology, you may have similar ones in chemistry and <coughs> physics as well. We have a random number table that we use when we're collecting data to determine certain sample sizes. And we print off these sheets of paper. In my years, this is how we then decide which table we're going to use. We take a handful of pencils and we throw them at the paper. And whichever, wherever the pencils land, those are the ones we use. 
And the reason being, we understand that computer randomness is not entirely random. But wherever the pencils land, those are the that could be more random than actually using the computer generating numbers. And I, I know, right, wrap your head around that, because I assure you, I have done it myself. I've had multiple sheets of paper in front of me. I've stood back a couple of meters and I've thrown some pencils at them. And whichever player, whatever the pencils landed, those are the sheets I used to conduct my research. <laughs> but then surely you've got a way of throwing which is predictable. And the computer program, does that not <clears throat> go back to um, the uncertainty that you don't know whether the cat's alive or dead? And that until you look at the program, you don't know what the randomness is. So it's both random and unrandom. So is, that, is that just nonsense? But have you? No, I wouldn't say so. But if you're programming it, then you're always starting from a point where you must know the program. But only if you look. But it has to be programmed, though. Yeah, but so it's programmed, but you can't know until you look at the program. If you don't look at the program, then it's random. But if right. you assume that the program is a program that's truly random, it will not have some kind of randomness, especially if someone analyzes it. We find this within people that try and cheat systems, specifically books and accounts. Yeah. Random numbers are never truly random. Even when people write down numbers in account books and they start coming up with random numbers, chances are you use numbers you actually like. Uh, if someone was to look through books that I like, chances are the numbers that will keep appearing are 42, 7, 38 and 13. Yeah. I like those numbers and unconsciously I have an unconscious bias towards those numbers. Uh, through things that I've read, these are numbers that I enjoy. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide? Well, Hitchhiker's they, Guide is they one have of relevance. Yeah, yeah, they have relevance to you, yeah. But if I was creating a sequence of numbers and you were to look at how many numbers I generate, those numbers will probably be in there and some of them will be repeated mm -hmm. or they'll appear more often than other numbers. It's one of the ways of catching out fraudulent account books. It's, probably, it's one of those things that probably rules out the number. So if I asked you for a random number just now, I, I'd rule out those numbers because you're thinking, I'm going to produce those numbers, so I'll produce something else. And that's only, what, three or four numbers, which means there's a whole load of other numbers you can produce. Yeah. Uh, there is a game that we, uh, that we do for a statistical analysis, which is to pick a number between 1 and 10. Now, when you hear that, you think of a number in your head. 90% of people are going to pick 7. And if that's the number that you've picked, if you are listening to this, then you'd be like, oh, how has that worked out? And statistically, that's the number you're going to pick. We've done this multiple times. When you think of a number between 1 and 10, you don't pick 1 or 10 because you have to go between. Nobody picks 5 because that's too obvious. And you're not likely to pick a lower number because lower numbers don't feel safe. So your next logical step is 7. 9 is too close to 10, 6 is too close to 5. Yeah, but all of that doesn't make any sense. There's no rationale behind that. There isn't any rationale behind it, but we have the data that so supports the, the, it. But the explanation, though, might not make any sense whatsoever. The, uh, you don't know that explanation is, is, is correct. Yeah. Maybe that's just what you've made to fit the answer that, that apparently everybody chooses the number seven. I guess we could try it today. Maybe this process. is the point to bring in one of my quotes on my Twitter page, which is, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to <laughs> <laughs> So what we could do today is ask the classes, write down a number, put it on a bit of paper, and then see how many of them produce seven. And, could and we see, what, see what happens. It gives us, it gives us more data. Yeah. Pick a number between one and ten. Hmm. Yeah. Inclusive. Yes. Including one and ten. Yeah. Well, Just in case somebody's thinking, hold on, is that exclusive or inclusive? That's well, that's a, the whole that's point. The, that's the problem with the question. <clears throat> Uh, and the problem with the data, that, but like lots of things that back this up. Statistically, more people pick seven. Uh, it's, it is interesting and it's observable. I'm willing to prove wrong again. Like, <laughs> like turning on the mic. <laughs> 
wait for my humiliation next week as we have 60 bits of paper that all say seven on them. <laughs> Darren Brown-esque. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's one of those strange observations that we have no real rational explanation for. We make obs observations and interpret. Right, at lunchtime as well. Let's try this. I'll see. Well, it'll be fun. Okay. Should we All right. wrap it up there in a random fashion? <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you very much. <laughs>